So if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, and I just want to look at a few things and just do a character study with you guys just for a few minutes and look at these four men in the book of Daniel that we see they pop up over and over. And I think if you've been to Sunday school, you're going to remember the story of the three Hebrew boys, right, that were in the fiery furnace. You guys remember that story? The three Hebrew boys in the fiery, fiery furnace. Actually, there's four. And... Uh, the fourth one was not in the furnace. The fourth, the fourth man, Daniel, was not in the furnace. But we read about four names in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is a phenomenal book. It's written about 600 B.C. This is when the um, Babylonians had just had been allowed by God to go into Israel and to take, uh, to take Judah captive and bring it back to Babylon. And the Lord allowed this because God was dealing with Israel. And with um, all of these people that the Babylonians took back to, uh, back to Babylon were many, many Hebrews, of course. And there were these four Hebrew boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are actually the Babylonian names. But I want to go over their Hebrew names. And I just want to kind of look at this from a practical perspective of what's happening with Daniel and these three brothers and how and how and how when we talk about impacting our culture and impacting our world we sometimes have a very wrong idea of what that looks like and we think a big a big splash a major speech uh, crowdfunding crowdsourcing uh, getting a mob together but we see that these four men uh, in a very quiet and a very, um, a very decisive way, were used by God to impact the Babylonian culture in an incredible way. So let's just look at this for a couple minutes. Daniel chapter one, and I'm going to just read through. <clears throat> Does somebody want to read for me Daniel chapter one verses one through um, one through seven? Who would like to read that? I'll do it. Okay. Um, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom no defect who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice foods and from the wine which he drank, and appointed them they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So very interesting story here. I enjoy Sunday school lessons, but I think sometimes what happens is if we've grown up in the church, our only concept of some of these incredible stories are just Sunday school stories. And when we talk about Daniel chapter 1, 
I think it's easy for us if we're not just bathing in the word on a daily basis. I think it's easy for us to live in old frame of references about mighty, mighty people. And these four men were incredible people. Daniel, his name in the Hebrew means uh, God has judged. God has judged. And what is happening here is, is that the Babylonians, what they would do, because they were the world culture at the time, their, their empire um, or their kingdom went all the way from the Persian Gulf all the way out to southern Turkey, down through Israel, down into Egypt. And this was a um, uh, this was a very this was a very popular culture, and it was a very um, it was a culture that was very persuasive. What they would do is, is when they would when they would take over a country, they would um, bring in this they would bring in people from the population. Some of them would be sold into slavery, and some of them would be they'd do some headhunting and they would look for um, like we read here uh, they would look for individuals that could benefit the king and his kingdom. And so what would happen is there'd be a three-year process where they were basically just brainwashed uh, by the Babylonian culture, Babylonian um, mythology, the Babylonian um, theology, and, and everything on every way. And at the end of these three years, they would be speaking Chaldean. They would, uh, they would have Chaldean names. They would have Chaldean dress. And whatever remnants of where they came from would be, would be basically washed away and would be pushed away. And this really speaks to me a lot because Daniel is a man here that's chosen by God and walks with God. And there's some one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament. And Daniel here uh, is with these three boys. And Daniel's name means a judge that God has judged. It's interesting because the Babylonian system, the system of Babylon, is symbolic of the world system today that desires to take you and I, the brainwash us over a period of years, and again, change our names change, and just conform us to their system. Conform us to that system. That system that is anti-God, that is anti, that's really anti-individual and it's really anti, it's very anti-human. And this system is a world system which Paul talks about in the New Testament as the world, the world system. And we, you and I, we, we live in it every day, don't we? And this world system every day, we, we sense its pressure we go to Kroger and we sense the pressure of, of, um, of, of, of expectations. We sense the pressure of what people need from us. Um, we sense this pressure of the world system on every level. And so this system really desires to um, conform individuals to benefit the system. And this is not the way the kingdom of God works. And so Daniel here represents, represents the believer. And these three Hebrew boys uh, who have grown up, and by the way, the, uh, the, the Jews had been removed from their country just a few years earlier, uh, about maybe 10 or so years earlier. So Caleb really wants a balloon. <laughs> Question, we can take them upstairs with the balloons and then Clyde with the balloons. Um, so this is what happens today. We live in a system that really desires for us to worship their gods, to be called by their name, and to be really conformed to the way they think, to what they think is good and right. And so the world system will actually take a person, you and I, and try to give us a new name. Let's look at, let's look at these names that they were given. Daniel here means that God has judged, meaning that God is the supreme judge in history. 
And the name that they wanted to give him, or they, they gave him, was actually um, Belshazzar, which means Bel, which was one of their gods, their main gods, protects. I mean, the world wants to pervert what we, what we are named by, what we believe, and wants to pervert it with their own understanding of, of God. The other names here is, um, is Hananiah. And Hananiah means um, God is gracious. God is gracious. The Babylonians wanted to change their name to uh, Shadrach, which means, which means um, afraid of God, fearful of God, and not fearful of their God, the Babylonian God. The world says, we read the word that God is gracious. The world says God is scared. You've got to be afraid of God. You better, you better shake in your shoes. That's the world's concept of God. And then um, Michel, which really means here, means uh, who is like God? Who is like God? I mean, who is? And there's like in the Hebrew, there's, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I just can read, I just read, and there's an exclamation point there. It's like, who is God? Like out of an exclamation, that's the guy's name, Michel. Like, who is God? And the Babylonians renamed him to Meshach, which was, I mean little. I mean little. I, I'm of low account. I don't mean much. I'm not important. I'm just, I'm just pawn in the matrix. I'm just, I'm just nothing. And then um, Azariah, which is a beautiful, which is a beautiful, um, a beautiful mean. It means that the Lord has helped. The Lord is my helper. The Lord shows up when I need help. And what they wanted to rename him was Abednego, which meant a slave of the god of Nego. A slave. Isn't the world so crazy about how they want to pervert and just twist everything about who you and I are in Christ? I have a friend, and she was uh, with my wife and I when we were missionaries in Lviv, which is Western Ukraine. And uh, she's American, and she's probably one of the funniest people I know. This person will can make you laugh. She's just got a gift of humor. She has a, uh, a husband, and he was one of my he was my assistant when I was in Ukraine. And, just a great man of God, and uh, she is just the money, funniest people. We could just get together and just laugh, and she would just crack us up, and it was just a sacred time of humor. And I said to her, I said, Kathy, I said, you are such a, I think Lizzie knows her, that's Kathy Grimwell. Like, I said, Kathy, you are such a funny person. You're so funny. And like, she goes, well, I wasn't always like this. I said, what do you mean? She goes, when I was a kid, I had somehow believed that I was the most boring person that I was that was bland and that I was not interesting and that nobody really wanted to hang around with me. And when I got to know God, God began to show me how He had made me as a personal creation that I could enjoy who I am, made in Christ. And so what happens is, and I don't know if you've studied this, but in the when a baby is in the womb, there is so much going on in that womb. There is this what they call prenatal wounding, or like like when the mother is scared or fearful. And she's secreting chemicals that are that are hitting that baby and causing fear in that baby, even before that baby is born. Or if a mother is born, I mean, if a mother's pregnant and and there's a um, and, and she has a baby and that baby's not wanted or that baby was unexpected, and really there's that consideration of abortion or whatever, that baby feels that rejection. So even before that baby, and this is this is science, this is medical science, it can be proven. Ask my wife. <laughs> That this can be proven that when a baby is born, it it senses rejection and it doesn't even know why and how. Um, in some cases, when a baby is celebrated and loved and, and is in the womb, 
then that baby can sense. Um, and I think when, when, when someone's pregnant and they're in the body of Christ and they're experiencing love and the, the genuineness of a, of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a body of believers that understand the nature of God, that baby sense, love, senses love in the womb. Isn't that amazing? And so here what happens, here's what happens. Like Paul says that when I was in my mother's womb, he had already had a calling in his life. And we can get into predestination and sovereignty and all of that. Let's put that aside for a second. But let's look at this, that God had a plan for that baby in Paul's womb. I mean, in, for Paul in Paul's mother's womb. And I love that because the devil, right from, right from the moment of conception, is working on just destroying the human being and bringing that person to a place where they just have no idea and understanding of how valuable they are. The 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 the, um, uh, the momentum behind this movement worldwide, where the human life is becoming less and less important, you can see it in the video games. You can see it in some of these violent movies, and we wonder why kids are, are shooting kids in school. I mean, what why you know it's a, it's a no brainer. What are we feeding our kids? And so, what God wants to restore, what these Hebrew boys understood, they understood their value. And this is the first thing: when you get to know God, and you get to know the God of the Bible, not just the God of religion, but the God of the Bible. One of the first things you discover is how valuable you are as a person. You begin to understand your your value, and like like we just celebrated the blood of Christ, and His blood was poured out for you. I mean, that's the like if you want romance, that's the most romantic story you could ever hear. That somebody laid down their life rescue you. That's amazing, isn't it? And so these these Hebrew boys here, uh, they take these names on, but you can see through the rest of the book of Daniel that they're pushing back, and they are actually living in who they are in God's eyes with the names that God gave them. And and that's why, um, and let's just go to, let's go to, um, to chapter 2, and I'm not going to read it here, but chapter 2 here in Daniel is um, Daniel and these um, and these three Hebrew boys uh, begin to become well-known because uh, during this preparation of three years, they refused to eat the king's food. Now, the Jews had a, a kosher dietary system, and they wanted to honor that. They wanted to honor what God had given them. And so they refused to eat the king's food and to drink the, the, the king's drink. And so um, the head of the eunuchs, and a eunuch, by the way, is a man that was dedicated to the service of the king or to the religion that was not allowed to get married. And these eunuchs, uh, the head of the eunuchs, was upset and was worried that if these Jew, if these boys or these young men are not eating the Babylonian food, when it's time for him to present them to the king, they've got to be a they've got to be a finished, fine, uh, refined products, and he was going to get in trouble if they looked sickly. They were just going to eat their eat their pulse. And King James says pulse. I don't know what it is in ESV or NSAV, but uh, it's a special food of vegetables that they're eating. And so they did this test, and they and again we see that we see the system trying to dictate to, to these Hebrew boys, even right down to uh, what they were supposed to eat. You're supposed to eat this. This is what this is going to make you healthy. And so to Daniel chapter two. We find out later that um, that in verse 17, I'm sorry, of chapter 1, these four children, God gave them the knowledge and the skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. I just love how when Daniel honors God, God begins to speak to him. 
And this is just a good point right here, is that when we refuse, when we push back against what the system is trying to tell, call us, like what their stereotype is of us, or a stereotype of you, or what your ethnic group is, or where you're from, or what city you're from, when we push back against that and we begin to live in who we are in Christ, what begins to happen is that God begins to speak. We begin to hear from God about who we are and what God's doing in our culture and in our neighborhoods and how the gospel applies. And so God begins to promote these men because they're not living in a compromise. And it's not about, okay, you can't eat the bread that the king eat. It's more than that. It's more that it, the idea here is that these Hebrew boys were pushing back against what the Babylonian system was trying to define them to be. The world today does that with Christians. The world's going to define. The world's going to do that with you and I. Um, if you're a believer in Christ, the world's going to be like, "Oh, you are okay. So you don't do this. You don't have any fun. Or you guys don't do that. Or you guys don't do these kind of things." It's way more than that. It's way more than that. And that's not our identity. And so, in, in, in Daniel chapter two, I, I just want to go through this because I was reading this yesterday and this morning. I love this book, Daniel chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king, actually has this dream. None of his magicians and astronomers and all of his wise people can figure out what it is. And it's a dream from God given to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, and he has an anger problem. If you're reading the book of Daniel, you see that Nebuchadnezzar is like, gets in these fits of rage. And just like, okay, I want to kill all of my magicians. And I want to, and magicians were not these people like doing hocus pocus. These were people that actually had demonic power that could actually do things. And he said, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to wipe out all my astronomers and my, my dream readers because they, can't, they can't do it. And this is what one of them says in verse 11. Listen to these words, what, what they say. Uh, because um, they reply to the king. They say, you know, this is a rare thing that you're asking because, because there's none other that can show before the king. And this is what they accept the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're saying, you know what? Only the gods can reveal this to you. No man's going to be able to tell you what this is. This is such a supernatural dream. No one's ever going to be able to, de to define it. We need to hear from the gods or their gods. But the problem was the Babylonian gods did, did, did not dwell with flesh. Now, is this bringing back some verses that you and I can... Is this bringing back some verses that come to mind in John chapter 1 where Christ dwelt in our midst and he took upon himself flesh? Was the word of God made flesh for that time to say in John chapter 1 that God dwelt, that Jesus Christ dwelt with men was such a blasphemous thought against the Greek and Roman mythology and the Babylonian mythology that it was just outrageous to say that that, that the gods they had their own business and they just used people as their little servants to, to run, their, to run their, their utopia, their world and that was Greek mythology. And they said, no one's going to be able to tell you, okay, because only a God can tell you. And then what happens here, they, Daniel gets called up. Daniel gets called up. And in verse 19, um, God reveals to Daniel in the night. I, I love Daniel's prayer life. I love how Daniel just heard from God. He prayed. Daniel wound up in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. He was in the political system. Uh, he didn't chase that. God brought him there. And what did Daniel do? He prayed. He was not a big speaker. He was not this running for a certain party. He was not a Republican or a Democrat. Or, uh, he was just walking with God. He was hearing from God. And you know what's great? I just love how Daniel and these three Hebrew boys are just minding their business. They're walking with God. And then God's like, 
But there's a man here, and he hears from God, and he can interpret what's going on. Just like Joseph. Remember Joseph? And then Daniel says, um, Daniel hears from God. Verse 20, he begins to worship God. He begins to worship God. I love Daniel's response. He begins to worship God as the God who sets up kings and puts down kings. In the United States, we have a voting system. We vote. We vote people in. We vote people out. But you know who it is really in the end? It's God in Romans chapter 13 that puts people into office. And we see here Daniel here in verse 22. Let's read this together. He reveals the deep and secret things. Well, I like that kind of God, don't you? There's a, the God has a secret. There's something. And I'm not a mystic. I'm not a mystical theologian. But I do, I do enjoy that mystical part of our Christianity, which I think American Christianity lacks. We lack it. We lack a prayer life. We lack... Um, I'm not talking about some supernatural, weird experience. I'm just talking about God, your God speaking to your soul, your God speaking to your spirit. I, I just, I think with technology and with the push button life that we live in and Google, we can get on, we can get on Google and within a nanosecond, we can know more about ancient history than even the people that lived in ancient history knew. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yet, how is that helping us in our, how is society doing? Are we getting better? Are we becoming more? No, we're not. We're getting more darker. <laughs> Sin is getting more darker. And, and, and what's going on is getting darker. And we have more murders. We have more people that are just living in just crazy evil. And it's not helping us. But God reveals secrets. He knows what is in the darkness. We read that. And so I think when we, we would read that, we'd think, well, you know, we've all heard those messages. God knows your secret sins. Well, he does. And that used to scare the wits out of me. But it's like, until I understood that God died for that, and there's now no condemnation, and that we just bring it to Christ, and that he takes it willingly in an environment of love and grace, and he sets us free from it. And that may require a process, but there's, he knows our dark, he knows our depths. Don't we long for that? We long for people to know us on the deep. No person, no pastor is ever going to be able to know you like that. No husband or wife is going to be able to know you like that. No only Christ can know the depths of you. He sees what's in darkness. And I love that we can go to God and say, God, you see what's in my darkness. So you see that, and I can bring it to you, and I can trust you for it. And God says, I take it, and I'm giving you something so much more beautiful. You know, it's so much more beautiful. And the light dwells with him. And it says in verse 28, there's a God in the heaven that reveals secrets. And this is what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Just a big baby. This guy was a big baby. He was just like, He's like, if you're not going to play my way, I'm just going to take all my toys, throw them away, and just go move on and do my own thing. He had an anger problem. And here, Daniel's speaking. There's a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to, to the king Nebuchadnezzar that shall be in the latter days. And, um, and he begins to, you know, we need a man of God, a person of God in our life that's going to speak. Not a psychic. You know why people, you know why people go to psychics? My wife has a, as, as a as someone that they she... Tell them what they want to hear. Huh? They tell them what yeah, they want. no, and they really... But you know something? My wife doesn't have a psychic. Let me finish that. My wife has a friend <laughs> that goes to a psychic. Okay? So my wife doesn't go to a psychic. <laughs> People say sometimes, you've got to finish your sentences because we don't know what you don't understand. Um, and... People go to psychics because they want someone to talk to them about the darkness, the deep darkness inside. I'm not talking about the bad stuff, but just the unknown parts that we don't even can't, we can't even figure out. Daniel is that person of God, and every one of us in this room, 
Um, of course, Jesus is the ultimate Daniel, but every one of us in this room can be like this kind of a person. Hear from God, walk in conviction, and, and push back against the identity of what the world is trying to put on Christians. And the world is, is, is getting their foot into the door of the church, and the church has now become another picture of just a business plan with goals and values and, and, and projects, and it doesn't look anything different than Exxon. Okay, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't. And people go there, and just, just, just there's, there's just, and so many times there's just no life happening and no conversion, and no one there is talking about the deep things of God. Okay? And so Daniel says here, and I like Daniel because if we read later on in Daniel, we, we read here that Nebuchadnezzar is so flabbergasted by Daniel, he begins to worship him. He, he burns incense to this guy. And it's like, you know, and he wants to make him a great man. And, and he calls him, actually, he lifts him up like a god. But Daniel says he kind of before, he kind of just lays it out in the front before this happens. He says in verse 30, But as for me, the secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I may have more than any living, but for their sakes that they shall make known. Interpretation of the king, and thou might, that thou mightst know the thoughts of thy heart. And so Daniel's saying, you know, what? I want to talk to the, I want to talk to him, Nebuchadnezzar about the thoughts of your heart. That none of no one in this world, Babylon is beautiful, it's refined, uh, it's incredible, it's highly knowledgeable, it's incredible, it's powerful, but it can't address the thoughts of the king's heart. And that's the way it is with the world. The world is never going to be able to tell you what's going on. You can get so much counseling. You, you and I can do so much reading. But we are not going to be able to find it until we actually go to our great Daniel, who is Jesus Christ, who knows the thoughts of God's heart and can speak to us. And so here he does that. And then we see, that we see um, verse 46, you see um, Nebuchadnezzar falls in his face and he worships Daniel and um, makes him a great man. And then I just want to, this is the part I want to get to in the are you guys still with me? Yes. Okay. So, uh, if you need to, grab a coffee over there. Um, it's okay. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 makes an image of gold. Okay, I, love, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy, he's just, have politicians changed since no. then? <laughs> he makes an image of himself, right? He like, makes an image of himself or makes an image for himself and uh, of gold whose height was three square cubits. I have my King James here. I don't even know what three square cubits is. Maybe somebody can tell me what that is. But, That's a big What's 90 feet? What's 90 feet? How big is 90 feet? Is that how stories? 30 yards. 30 yards. How many stories is that? Nine. Nine stories. Wow. we got a lot of engineers in this room. Wow. Ten story. Nine, ten stories. A ten story statue, okay? And the deal was, he, Nebuchadnezzar was so in love with himself, and so, so impressed by himself, and so impressed by what he's done, that um, he just figured he'd just splurge on himself and make himself a statue of, of gold, solid gold. I mean, you imagine how much gold would be needed to build a nine, ten-story statue? That's incredible. And so what he had done was is that when there was a certain, when the, when the music, when the musicians would play a certain sound, and I was reading here, and I didn't get the chance to look at my ESV, but I was reading the King James, one of the instruments here was a sackbut. Does anybody know what a sackbut is? It's the craziest word I've ever heard. But it's a flute, a harp, a cornet, and 
a dulcimer, and all kinds of music. And when they would play the sackbut, when they would play this music, all this, it would be a certain tune, it would be a certain kind of melody. Everybody had to stop what they were doing, and they would have to fall on their face and worship this 90, this, this 90 foot, this uh, 90 foot image. They would have to fall on their face, or they have to bend their knee, and they would have to work, and they would have to worship it. And everybody did that, except for four men in the whole kingdom. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Four men do not bow their knee. Okay, four men do not fall on their face to worship this egoist. And by the way, this world system is run just by ego-filled individuals that are just being manipulated by demonic powers and principalities. And and so they wouldn't. So they wouldn't fall on their face and they wouldn't do this. They they said because. And what happens here? Certain Chaldeans. It says later on. Um, and I love I love how the how the, the writer of Daniel writes this. Certain Chaldeans. Always just a certain group of small group of people that come around to give a bad report, to tattle on on on, on God's people. And it says, certain of your dignitaries, certain of your rulers are not bending the knee when the music is playing. And, and it says that Nebuchadnezzar was enraged. He had a fit. He just went crazy in his throne room. And he said that there's that just the that the entire kingdom would be on their face before this before this image, except for four people, and that bothered this king. He owned Egypt. He he ran he ran all the way out. He ran this whole kingdom, and yet four people really disturbed him. Now, is that crazy or what? The, like this is what really gets on Nebuchadnezzar's nerves, and he says he's enraged. He call them, call them, you know, call them for my presence. And so they come, and they say. To, to these three these three um, Hebrews, uh, are you refusing to, to bow to them? Why are you not bowing when the music? And it's interesting that when the music's played, you've got to bow. I mean, it's interesting how how worship is associated with certain kinds of music and bowing to idols. And we know that every idol behind every idol is a demonic is a demonic entity. And so we have friends that are missionaries that were missionaries in Africa. Adam Speedy is one of them. And he said, in America, we don't see demons. We don't see these weird things because demons hide behind houses and cars and all these things that we worship in our American society. In, in Africa, where they don't have anything, there's nothing really to hide behind. So you can just see them really in a, um, in a very evident way. And so they said, and I love, listen to what these Hebrews say. I love this. In verse 16, so three men, four men upset the entire kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Like, and how many times we see this in the Bible where Saul is so upset with David about David being anointed king, and he's chasing him all over. I mean, he's got this entire kingdom to run, and he's just jealous over this one guy, a very poor man. And he says, and listen to what he says in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. I love that. We're not worried about it. When you know, this word here means we're not worried. We're not worried about answering this matter. They're not nervous. They had already prepared in their heart, settled in their heart what they were going to do, what they were going to say. And here are three Hebrew guys that are just standing up against the mightiest king in the world at the time. Isn't that amazing? And what does he do? He said, if it be so, our God, and this is the point I want to say, and this is how we're going to relate it. If it be so, whom our God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, 
He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will do it. Can God, and then Billy talked about this a couple weeks ago. Can God do it? Yes, he can do it. He can do it. Will he do it? Well, we're going to see here. And because now they are making God great, greater than the Mechanezer and all the kings and the gods of, of Babylon. And they said, we're not careful. And I love that boldness. And I, I like that because it should be really clear in our hearts. Number one, who we are in Christ. And that's what the job of the church is. It's really to educate about people who they are in Christ. Not what you got to do and what you got to say and this is how you have to act. But really to instruct people in identity, who they are in Christ. Because the world, that's what the, when my wife and I were living in communist, well, Poland had come out of communism, but communism in Poland and Ukraine uh, really destroyed the identity of the individual so that they could incorporate everybody into the machine, the communist machine that served the party. And here's what the king says, and, and if not, be it known, king, we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Love that. You know? Uh, from time to time, you hear in the media people that are just not going to, they're not going to bow. And they just stand out one out of just millions. They're just not going to bow down. And it's just amazing to see that because of their conviction. And then Nebuchadnezzar, of course, verse 19, full of fury, his visit, his face changed. He became like a different person. And um, and he said, heat up the furnace seven times hotter. Right? Seven times hotter. And, uh, and then he got his most mighty men. He got his most, he's got his most powerful men. You know, his best military men to grab them, fully clothed, and throw them bound up into the fire of the furnace. Now, I don't know how hot this furnace was, but it was pretty hot. And... Uh, they threw him in there, and it was so hot, and it was so hasty that the guys that were throwing him in there were just instantaneously just just burned alive. They were just burned to the bone, and they were dead, it says here. And um, the three of them get thrown, bound into the furnace, and then listen to King Nebuchadnezzar's response here. Verse 24, the king was astonished and rose up in haste. Now, this guy is anxious, he's nervous, he's got probably some psychotic or neurotic right now. And he's running around. He says to his counselor, did we not cast in three men bound to the midst of the fire? And then he says, what does he say here? They have no hurt. And the fourth, and the form of the fourth is like of the Son of God. Now think of that. It's amazing. He looks in there, and he sees four men walking around, walking around. I don't know what they were doing, just walking around, checking out the inside of the furnace. Like, wow, I've never seen inside of a furnace before. And they're probably talking, and there's the fourth man there, and that's who that who is that? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's in the midst. He's there. Now here's the main point I want to make. He gets them out. Of course, he makes them out. He gets them out. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has another come come to Jesus moment and says, Okay, your God is the greatest. And listen to this. Before I get to the main point here, this is what happens here. Listen to this. And this is how your this is a practical point. Your personal convictions about who you are in Christ. And pushing back, pushing back. Sometimes, uh, in if you're single, sometimes the world is projecting on you an image of what a single person should look like in this world. Just having fun, just going crazy, living it up, and and that is just not the image of Christ. You are a sacred vessel of God, and your body is a holy temple of the Holy Spirit. And that purity that you have in Christ is so is so valuable. The devil hates it. And the devil wants to eat it up like a piece of bread. And the devil, and what the what the image that 
the world wants to put on you as a wife or as a husband or as a as a as a as a grandparent is not the image of Christ. And so what happens here is that they stand up against it. And guess what Nebuchadnezzar says? He says this. Um, but listen to verse 27. Okay, I want to read this to you. The princes and governors and captains and the, of the king's counselors, and I'm in chapter 3 of Daniel, being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies, get this, the bodies, the fire had no power. Okay, the fire, the power had no power. I know I'm going a little wrong here, but I, I just got to say this. We live in a culture that worships fire, okay? And you say, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Because in the ancient Chaldean culture and the Persian culture, they were fire worshipers. They worshipped fire. The, the most ancient cultures worshipped fire. Why? Because it was the ultimate judge of all things. It would burn, and it would. And if it was not gold or some precious substance, it would destroy it. So fire was revered. In our culture, my son loves fire trucks. I mean, he just loves fire trucks. We drove by here. Uh, up on Kirkendall, and we stopped at one of the fire stations there, and, and uh, I was just so impressed by these young guys in there just working out, weightlifting. I mean, these are the most fittest firemen I've ever seen in my life. I said, "Are you guys firemen, or are you guys Navy SEALs, or what? Who are you?" And my my son goes in there, and he's like flabbergasted by like the fireboat, and they had like this Ford 550 uh, huge truck as a fire truck, or like you know, it looked like it just could. Uh, ready for rugged territory, and then there was a fire truck, and they let him sit in the fire truck. Why? Because there's a part of our nature inside, deep inside of us, that understands the power of fire, and we worship fire. We worship fire trucks. We worship the instruments that can put out fire, or we worship the insurance that can keep us safe from fire, and all of this. And so fire did not touch these guys. Fire did not touch these guys. And I think that sometimes when we go through trials, we go through a fire curse, we want everybody to smell our fire. We want we want everybody to smell the the smell of smoke on us. We want everybody to know how much trouble. And it's good. We need counsel. We need encouragement. We need love and encouragement. But these guys are not talking about the smoke. They have no they have no hair singed on them, and their coats do not change color. And then what he what does what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He says, "Blessed be the God." Verse twenty eight of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice the Babylonian names that are used here. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. His angel here is referring to Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate form, and that trusted in him and had changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any other god except their own god. What an incredible testimony that is. Isn't it amazing? Here they are. They just stand in their identity and in their convictions about what they know who God is. And they have international, they have a kingdom empire-wide um, recognition of how powerful their God is. Last thing here I want to say is, is that when we are in the fire, we're not alone. We have someone that is truly with us in the fire. So don't give up your convictions. Don't compromise. Don't compromise with the identity that the world is trying to put on you. Um, draw near to Christ and let him comfort you. And don't try to strive to make a big point. Just be who you are. And when that moment of truth comes, take a stand in truth. Stand in who you are in Christ and not in what the world finds us to be. Amen? Amen. So let's just close in prayer and we'll just open it up for a few comments or questions.